Welcome to Public Cloud for Public Good, a podcast talking about cloud sustainability and how we can use public cloud services to make the world a better place. Thanks so much for joining me again today for Public Cloud for Public Good. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Gonzalez, who is a self-proclaimed anthropologist of data centers and cloud storage. I found that job title so fascinating, mostly because I chose my own as a cloud sustainability advocate. But uh, Stephen also wrote an article for Wired, which was sent to me by a listener. So thank you so much for sending that in, called The Infinite Cloud is a Fantasy, uh, which, again, we'll dive into. And so... Stephen, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more and we'll kick off from there? Well, thank you so much for uh, the the invitation, Aaron, uh, to come here and, and speak to your listeners. And it's it's really a pleasure to be here. So about me, uh, as, as you said, my name is Stephen Gonzalez, Monserrate. I'm a PhD candidate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in a program with a very long acronym called History, Anthropology, Science, Technology, and Society. We like to call it HASTS because it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's a really fascinating program because the students um, approach issues in science and technology from many different disciplines and lenses. In my case, I use ethnographic and anthropological methods or lenses to understand infrastructure, and my focus is data centers. So the title, the job title Cloud Anthropologist is something that sort of occurred to me as, as how do I succinctly convey what I do? Because often I struggle to, to kind of give an elevator pitch of, of what it is that I study and what I do. So I thought two words together and let people start to think about what those two mean together. And so, and the, and the other reason I use the word cloud is because cloud is a metaphor. And as anthropologists, we love to think about the power of metaphors and the, the location and history of them and what, the, what they're used for. Uh, and so cloud is a is a, a misnomer in a lot of ways because it, it, it but it's also a very effective metaphor because what we're talking about are a, a range of infrastructures, servers, fiber optic cables, uh, cellular towers, satellites, and more. It's never ending. Are- <laughs> yeah, I mean, AWS has released some more services than we can keep up with, and they definitely now include a lot of leaving satellite ground stations and and you know the next generation of of, of computers. Is some people are looking at that in space and and powering it with solar or you know beaming that data back down. And you know we've already seen that with Starlink from. Elon Musk, but you know, it's not long before we have those internet connections before we start having the data as well, because you know, transferring all that around the world it, it has a cost. But yeah, clean energy, at least, even if it's not so much of a clean route to space, is is something we're chasing. So, just focus on anthropology for a little bit there, because obviously, when we think about that, and and this is where I'm not very knowledgeable. Uh, I do wish that when I, I did A levels, I did more than just the sciences of biology, chemistry, and maths, because you know these are the things I'm starting to think about now. Is like psychology, um, like human behavior, and the study of behavior. Because cloud is a culture, like you said, it's a misnomer for um, data centers, but cloud computing is 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 almost a cultural phenomenon, and it's something that has been marketed, like you said, uh, the idea of the infinite cloud uh, comes from how it's sold. People say you don't need to worry about the infrastructure or what you're building because it'll just scale horizontally. Don't build too wide. We'll manage all of that. And yeah, it's an interesting thing how that seeped into our day-to-day life. I mean, some of the technological advancements that we kind of use day-to-day and take for granted only come out of 
the way the cloud has evolved. So, so when you look at anthropology, then how did you end up like with the behaviors and that culture study of cloud? What, what where did you start, and what have you found out since? Sure, sure. So, as anthropologists, as as you said, we're very interested in behavior. We're interested in metaphor. We're interested in language. And for me, the cloud was this mysterious mystique, <laughs> this place that is not really a place that is more of a fantasy that many people, especially non-technical people, just kind of have this idea that the internet is, that the cloud is everything the internet touches and that it's mm -hmm. invisible or infinite or seamless or submerged beyond any kind of, um, you, you, one can't access it or know it. I mean, almost quite literally with Microsoft submerging their data centers as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> to yes, the sea. Project Medic. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so, so that, that intrigued me as an anthropologist. I wanted to understand this black box, uh, what mm. Bruno Latour, the science and technology studies uh, philosopher, the late philosopher said, uh, that, that, that technology is black boxed. And so we want to understand how it works. And so I was intrigued and I wanted to study the cloud from within which I thought was also a, a slightly different angle because many people, when they study the cloud or they study, especially at the intersection of sustainability, they're looking at, and rightly so, they're looking at figures and facts and data and, and policies and, and sort of the, the effects and impacts, but they're not kind of looking at the sort of texture of everyday life of running a data center. And so that's what my work does. I follow I've spent a lot of time shadowing and working in data centers as sort of like an, a spy or an intern. <laughs> and I've, I hope I've... you're disclosing like how you're observing people before you show up. It's just like these poor data center workers just just have no idea what to expect, and you're like, hmm, what did he have for lunch today? Like... <laughs> yes, they, I think many of them were were puzzled by what I was intrigued about and, and sort of the mundane aspects of their lives. You know, yeah, exactly. What does what does a lunch break look like? Or what is your day to day? Resolving IT support tickets, uh, racking mm. and stacking servers, seeding cables, untangling cables. I learned about this thing called a rack's nest, which is a sort of, just, just to kind of put it succinctly, it's um, a, a way to describe a really messy cables <laughs> in, in data centers. So there's a whole aesthetic of like how one cables in data centers. You can instance. see how something like that as well is either inspired by science fiction or sounds like something straight out of Star Wars. Like, you know, that's the thing with the, you know, you look at the people who are involved in technology and the cultures and the generations and how kind of, you know, I think in some ways like you know there are distinct sections of people who work in tech so you've got people who've been around since the beginning when they had to rack and stack that was actually the majority of the culture in tech was sort of like these racks and stacks and maybe some irc chats as well right up to kind of people who are coming out of college or even school or university where the cloud providers themselves are basically the ones telling them and telling this story of of, of kind of how to access and how to build things on the internet and you know that's a completely different view you, you know, you sort of, I, myself, uh, you know, I, I kind of got into tech only about eight, nine years ago. And there was a point where I started to go, oh, hold on a minute, data centers exist and we have them and they're big. I worked for large government departments. So I was kind of more familiar with kind of deploying things to the things that we owned our on-premise data centers. But then I started to work with Amazon and the kind of looking at the cloud bill. And it's sort of like, it kind of hits you when you're such a large customer that when you are deploying, things you have to 
basically liaise with Amazon to make sure there's enough room in those data centers. They don't just grow organically or or they're not infinite. You know, it's the, the, just the problems are at a different scale. And these days, uh, the problems are at the scale of cloud providers and hyperscale providers, and they seem to control the narrative and kind of this mystique uh, and culture around it all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's th th that last part of what you said really, really uh, resonates with my work and my research is the kind of overblown or overrepresentation of hyperscale as data center as like mm. this is you we see in the marketing imagery of Google's glitzy data centers with texts um, very merrily uh, cavorting around on scooters, and that is in my view and my experience not really very representative of of what many data centers are like. Many data centers do not have access to the latest technology many of them are are in buildings that are that have been vastly obsoleted in terms of the equipment that's running in them so 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 i think that there is sort of a, i think i think what one of the things that my work reveals is the diversity of data centers as not only in terms of the business model we have co-location enterprise and hyperscale and many configurations in between as well but we also have to think about the diversity in terms of like the globe, thinking about the different cultures of tech that uh, are specific to specific locations. So in, in, in my experience, uh, data centers, running a data center in, in a place like Puerto Rico is very different than Iceland or very different than Arizona. Uh, and those are places that I've studied and seen the, this sort of pattern of, of behaviors shift, not only as a response to, say, the very diverse climate conditions, the external climate conditions. So in Iceland, you have the Arctic, what, what people call free cooling. It's, a, it's, um, it's posed in many ways as a sort of haven for data centers for that reason, because nature is being harnessed as a natural cooling engine. But then you have a place like Arizona, which has temperatures in excess of 120 degrees Fahrenheit in some mm. summers, which is... Seem would seem to be the complete antithesis to computing, but there is a massive. Yeah, but if someone wants to make money in Arizona, and and data centers are almost like it's it's almost like you know it's a way of it's it, and I've said this in a talk before. It's the next generation of kind of like how scientists who discovered how to turn oil into plastic as a new route, a new sale. You know, it wasn't just gasoline and cars. We've now discovered how to turn electricity into things like the cloud and big data and AI. It's sort of this next generation of, of kind of how we're turning right now oil into money and, and people want to get in. I think it's fascinating when you say like places like Arizona and California. California, obviously, is where a lot of these hyperscalers are. There's a lot of water consumption that has to go into cooling these data centers in these environments. And that's something which, you know, we talk about the mystique. That's the secret of the cloud in some ways. You know, when asked directly, certain cloud providers have basically said, we're not giving that information because it's a proprietary secret. When, you know, they'll publish statistics at a global level, but seeing the impact on local communities is, is very difficult. And before I rant on too much, because what you said was just really fascinating. I could jump around in loads of different <laughs> ways. But, you know, I look at things like the scale that we have to work in. You know, Amazon, and like you said, these big data centers have been going for a while. US East One, while we kind of have, you know, more and more buildings being built, there's still the old generation that exists. And there's only so much you can do at that scale to catch up or to be green. And I find it fascinating when you look at kind of where data centers are chosen to be built, that a lot of the time it follows money or, or tax incentives or negotiations at a global scale or a national scale with governments because it 
brings money into the economy. It's it's the next generation of, of sort of the UN sustainability goals of, of data-driven economies. And yeah, rather than prioritizing, like you said, the natural things we could use like Iceland or geothermal electricity in Norway, they prioritize money and, and tax incentives. And, and yeah, it is fascinating how all of this has happened at a global scale. And to be honest, there's not a lot of oversight or, or opposition, I'd say. Yeah, so I I would definitely I, I would agree with you in in a lot of what, what you were saying about you know the the logic of where data centers cluster and are cited are not what you would think. <laughs> they are not. They have a history, and they also uh, ref, there, there's a politics to where data centers are cited and stored. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can think about uh, in the U.S. in in the Virginia North Carolina area where the largest cluster of data centers are. You know, there, there's a reason that they're there, um, and and we can think about energy efficiency is not the reason because most <laughs> of the grids there are coal fired, and Amazon and others have have continued to invest in companies like Dominion Energy who have have not made any significant strides in uh, making their grids sustainable. But mm-hmm. the, the the reason is the proximity to the U.S. government's capital. You know, you have to think about a, a lot of different uh, factors come into play. So it's not just is it hot here, is it cold here, is it humid here, is it dry here, which is what one of the questions that my dissertation project asks. It's also about politics. It's also about these sort of aspects of ecology that one would not call natural, but they are. So there's a huge tax incentive for data centers to cluster in a place like Arizona or California. But as you said, the water politics of this are enormous. In a, in a region that's experiencing a drought, the likes of which has not occurred for hundreds uh, of years, is you know, it, it, there, there's a politics to that. When people, mm-hmm. when, when farmers have to compete for water with servers, that's political. And I think that it, as well, you can think about, um, in my case study of Arizona, specifically in the community of Chandler, Arizona, there's a data center that's run by Sirius One, which I did a lot of field work in that area. And I've been to a lot of data centers in that area in, in Arizona in the greater Phoenix area. And uh, this data center is located very close to residential communities. In fact, it's um, it abuts a park where children and families gather every day. Now, that might not seem like, like an issue, but it, it is an issue because of the noise. Mm-hmm. Now, not all data centers are noisy because of there's for various reasons, but this data center is, is particularly noisy and the noise is incessant because the cloud is incessant. Unlike other industries, people don't, uh, you don't turn off the servers at any point <laughs> because the expectation is that it's always available and always on. The noise comes from the air handler units, the air chiller units, but also the generators that are, have to be in constant standby because we have an expectation of constancy, of infinitude, of instant availability. Yeah. And so that's, that's where that comes in. I think, you know, you're right there to mention the sort of backup generators. A lot of these are diesel powered generators that are kept hot, uh, basically, so that they can spin up to the capacity for the electricity generation as soon as it's required. You know, we expect when we when we're drawing out our requirements, what we will as a need, what we need for our technology, for example, when we're building products, we go, OK, resiliency and security should be the top of our list. And those resiliency conversations result in these environmental impacts, not only from the sort of, you know, desire to keep on burning coal and and sort of you know push out this this noise this this pollution in a different way uh, to these local communities but in stuff 
like replicating data. To get that sort of high resiliency 579 recovery, you have to replicate that data three times and cross free uh, part of your availability zone or for some companies' regions. If, if they ever get that far, though, I think that's also one of the other things when it comes to selling the cloud and this ability to, you know, fall over and and build these tools kind of almost worldwide the, the ability to actually us do that with our coding skills and our on our on our workplaces with with the people that we can actually build these products is is, is sometimes fraught and you know i found that fascinating when you know cloud providers would would help you migrate to the cloud and promise you all this with these managed um, all these like kind of migration acceleration programs is is one thing from from aws once you kind of get there and you look at optimization and look at other elements, that's where the sort of, you know, the, it falls flat. You know, the technology kind of reaches its limits. I think that, yeah, that's, that's really an important train of thought to follow because like the, the cloud as a system, as a set of interconnected systems is also supported by cultural expectations of instantaneity, of constancy, of resiliency and security as well. I mean, mm. this is, this is the other reason why the levels of redundancy are necessary. Security in the sense of your data is secure from people who would want to steal it, but also secure from deletion or um, destruction by environmental forces like hurricanes. Uh, in the context of, of Puerto Rico, which is another place that I've done research, it was, it was a really shocking situation uh, to, to witness and be part of as 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 a Puerto Rican person in the United States, um, but also as as someone with family who experienced a lot of disruption as a result of Hurricanes Maria and Fiona, and that is a story that many Puerto Ricans experienced. Uh, that people didn't have power on the island for almost a year mm. uh, following <laughs> Hurricane. Maria. The data centers were all right though. When did they get power back? They they never lost power. <laughs> Uh, because uh, in, in in a place like in, in a place in place like Puerto Rico with an aging power grid that is very very vulnerable to these kinds of uh, natural phenomena like like hurricanes, which are increasing in magnitude and intensity as a result of climate change, it it is really striking to to be in a situation where the servers are fine, they have power, but the people do not. And and what does that mean? There's a politics to that. There's a politics. So the cloud is always political, and that's the other aspect that I think is really important to bring up. It's so fascinating that you bring up like that sort of story, you know, we, we prioritize this, this restoration of power and, and this isolation from the grid or backup generators for things like the cloud, when actually the local community are left out or, or not kind of able to access that power generation, for example, like if it was diverted, because one or like you said, cultural expectation, this, this desire, this need for instantaneous repair, but also kind of that political drive, either, I guess, lack of opposition or, or just sort of, you know, prioritization uh, of profits or wealth or, or the idea that society is, is only better because of GDP, you know, not because of other factors like providing food or access to heat or water or, you know, these other basics that we might need to live. And, you know, you can kind of see it in, in different areas of the world in different ways, like South Africa, for example, where Amazon is, is building uh, new data centers. And, and I imagine the same for other, other cloud providers, you know, only a certain percent of that country currently has access to clean running water. 
but there's going to be a lot of infrastructure and a lot of prioritization and a lot of building to, to service these these data centers in the same region because it brings in wealth um but and doesn't kind of improve these local lives i remember you know someone mentioned it to me and, and again you think about it and you know, we've talked about the culture and the people that work in these data centers, but there's not actually that many of them. When we look at traditional industries and how they give back to local communities and the jobs that they might create or, or, or kind of, you know, other things that they open up in the market, cloud doesn't do very much for the local community, especially in terms of direct employment. It's, it's very highly skilled. They may already be kind of traveling in or flying in. They may build the data center near to an airport or, or a city like London, for example, rather than sort of, you know, bringing in new jobs as well, which, yeah, it, it kind of all just, it, you think about it, when you think about the internet, you kind of think, oh, it's all good, like all this growth and everything else, but then you kind of go back a few layers and it's sort of just the same old story of, of capitalism and, and everything else. And yeah, it is it's kind of more eye-opening the more you read into it. Yeah, I mean, that's that 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 definitely resonates um, with a lot of the things that, that I look at and think about as well. You know this this echo that happens sometimes with history, where you see data centers clustering around old uh, ports or, or imperial nodes of power, for instance. Data centers taking up residence in old bunkers. There's there's a lot of historical echoes that happen here, where these needs for securitization, these needs for proximity to other uh, adjunct or ancillary infrastructures, then converge, and you and you have this situation where data centers are kind of um, coming to fill the ruins of of, of other uh, projects, like um, uh, another good example is Keflavik in um, in Iceland, where the abandoned U.S. Uh, military base has become a data center. The the other thing that I can I think about a lot in in my own work are the ways that data centers are incredibly localized. And so, going back to your your point about how few people actually work inside of data centers. I think that's a really good point because when the companies that promise to build data centers in a community, they often also promise that there will be jobs. And uh, during the construction phase, there are jobs. And if the company is ethical, they will contract locally as much as they can to kind of give the local economy a little bit of a jolt. But once the, once the facility is constructed, it does not, in many cases, depending on the size, it, it's a dozen or or maybe a little bit more than a dozen people who are really working there. And many of them, as you said, are imported workers. They're, they're not locals. Uh, and so that, that becomes a problem. So one of the things too is that when you have so few people working in a data center, especially in the data centers that are not as well resourced, so lower tier in terms of redundancy, um, smaller scale, uh, especially the ones that are in like older buildings that really are very outdated, there's a lot of pressure. Mm. There's a lot of pressure on the data center technicians to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And that pressure is incredibly disruptive to their lives. These people I've interviewed who tend to be men, and that's a sort of a trend that's reflected industry-wide in, in the data center industry that, that there's, um, it, it's a very masculine industry in a lot of ways. Uh, and women and, and uh, People and non-binary people are very much excluded from this uh, this space in a lot of ways. It's something that the industry is aware of and is and is working on. But in my mm. observations and and my experiences in data centers, it seems to be a very masculine space. And so some of the things I look at are the 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 convergence between masculinity and this need to keep the cloud operational at all costs, and the intense pressure that that creates. 
I didn't expect anywhere to kind of get into this direction, but kind of what you raise is, is one, fascinating, but again, one of those things where you think about it makes sense. Like the generations that have come by in terms of managing the internet, the, the internet, the people who are highly skilled are going to end up getting the skills over X amount of time who are now working at the top tier data centers will also be men who started an industry that looks very different from what society and, and what kind of equal work and, and rights for everyone kind of says should look like today. And yeah, the idea that this masculine culture is fed into this pressure and stress, because that was one of the things I was thinking about, you know, you're saying a couple of dozen people, like even with shifts, that's still not a lot of leeway for things to go wrong. And and I can't imagine the pressure when, you know, you basically, for, for hyperscalers like AWS, run parts of the internet, like single things that go wrong and things that, again, linking back to climate change, like, you know, fire uh, or heat sensors going off in data centers from overheating, which is becoming a more and more common occurrence. The uptime industry, I've sort of highlighted it, is, is one of the major problems and should be higher up on risk registers for companies and especially cloud providers and data center providers. But yeah, it's this cyclical thing of, you know, the more we want it, the more we grow it, the more it contributes to climate change, the more that comes back down onto sort of the impact on communities and individuals. And yeah, it, it's 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 almost like, again, this capitalistic thing where there's, there's, a, there's a layer of the internet that has to work in this way so that we can all enjoy our TikToks and our AI-generated images for Twitter <laughs> and, and everything else because, yeah, th there's this sort of like bottom layer of, of sort of stress and pressure and yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the the stress and pressure is is very real, and 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 I'm really glad you brought up the the issue of of the thermal, because thermal management is um, was historically something that was a lot more difficult in the early 2000s, and so the the solution was to sort of flood cool the room, is to is to is to just throw as much cooling as you can to make sure everything is. Is operational, but as technology improved, as methods and best practices were more refined, there were ways that people people learned many different ways to make their operation more efficient. The cooling operation, so things like airflow management and manipulation of of air, to uh, the arrangement and the configuration of the servers and the racks, and mm. things like cold aisle containment, which containerize the air and try to kind of segregate the cold and the hot as a way to make greater efficiency gains. But with, the, with all of that being said, the climate is changing. The, the climate with a capital C is changing. And so the microclimates of these data centers are feeling that as, as uh, the spectacular outage in, uh, in London, the Oracle outage showed and, and a few others this uh, past year. The planet is heating at a rate that even the data center designers, architects, and technicians on the day-to-day -day just aren't ready for. And so we anticipate that there will be more and more thermal outages. And that is, that is a problem. And, and historically in the industry, based on the interviews I've done and the time I've spent with a lot of these technicians and facility managers and data center managers is just one really conspicuous failure that you as are found to be responsible for, approximate to, might be the end of your career. And a part of that has to do with, as you were saying earlier, capitalism and these expectations, downtime costing um, upwards of thousands of dollars a minute, tens of thousands of dollars a minute by some estimates, depending on the industry, depending on the application. 
and and so the the pressure that these men are uh, up against, and I'll say men because that team that's I'm qualifying my experience of who I've spent time with and interviewed, mm-hmm. is the pressure that they're under is enormous and. Many of the times they're not thinking about sustainability. They're not thinking about, let me turn off that air conditioner, that extra one, because that's comfort that they are losing. That is more stress and more pressure. And they have to trust something like a CFD model to work as it theoretically should work when they have their own guts and senses about how things should operate. Yeah, I mean, I imagine there's a lot of gut culture as well in that, that the sort of type of people who, who would rely a lot on, on understanding, you know, just from kind of proximity of, of what's really going wrong. But yeah, coming, like, keeping on the thermal theme, because, you know, you mentioned earlier on about how data centers in different countries will probably look very different in, in different ways. Uh, but one of the fascinating things, you know, I heard about is, is almost like data centers in countries like India where labor is so cheap, you'll have room boys in like every server room potentially or, or people that are basically there full time sat there in case anything goes wrong, even if, you know, there's not a real logical reason for them to, to be doing that or that role. And as we sort of look at, like you said, that the technology changes that maybe servers and chips can work at a higher temperature, the people are going to be working in different environments. I don't know what they all might look like. You could probably say there's every different environment that everyone who works in a cloud data center might touch on, but whether that's overheating or too much cooling and yeah, it is, it is a fascinating area. And again, just more and more pressure on these individuals who kind of are just servicing our desire and, and need for a fast and, and ever-growing internet. I, I, I came across um, some different ways, and, and this is kind of one of the things I'm really trying to campaign about at the moment. I'm speaking at a conference very soon, and and kind of my kind of question to everyone is, or, or my ask is, it's time to start thinking about the cloud differently. Does it have to be a hyperscale data center? Can it look like different things? So there's companies that are cloud providers right now, like Leaf Cloud, for example, who basically uh, build their data centers in urban areas close to where companies or businesses would have heat needs. So whether that's a gym or a hotel to power a sauna or the heating for, for all those guests and, and having them at those scales um, and, and dotted around cities, uh, right down to an individual home level. So there's a company in the UK called Heater who are currently looking at a trial to put individual servers attached to hot water tanks. So they'll pay you for the power that goes into the house that goes towards that box uh, and all the excess heat will be sort of used then to hopefully reduce your heating bills. And, you know, these different ways of looking at the cloud and, and what the next generation of cloud looks like is, is you know, I, sometimes I wonder whether it is the hyperscalers because we kind of got serverless, which again, you know, the hyperscalers, it's right that they exist in some ways and I'm glad that they do because they have pushed on technological advancement. Serverless is a product of the cloud and that's the only way that we're really ever going to be truly sustainable in some ways when workloads can be managed in a way that isolates them. So we could time shift or demand shift, for example, where workloads can be run when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing for renewable energy rather than sort of the traditional, I don't know, VM or or, or, or EC2 bucket, uh, EC2 instance, which is just on all the time. And, you know, this is what the cloud enables. But it doesn't just have to be the hyperscalers now. There's a lot more out there in the world of open source software and and different ways of deploying things that I think people should start looking at. And it's probably going to be a good route for, for sustainability as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm very much with you on that. We need to we need to entertain the idea of of different kinds of cloud, and new configurations, new ideas are really important uh, for us to overcome the sustainability challenges that we face. 
because the cloud will continue to expand. Um, we've become increasingly reliant on it. During the pandemic, we had a 30% uptick in activity, digital traffic. And it's very difficult to predict the future. Hmm. But uh, if we look at what's on the horizon, the, the ubiquity of AI-powered applications, uh, things like Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse and the inevitable competitors that will follow, uh, there is a huge amount of infrastructure that will need to be constructed. And so the question is, if we continue to do things the way that we are doing them, the, the 2% emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which is roughly equivalent of the airline industry, that that will increase. The, the water footprints will increase. The electronic waste generated from data storage will also increase. And if we are not also increasing the recycle recyclability of these materials, we're not addressing water and maybe thinking about how to, how to give water back to the communities or give power back to the communities, or as you said, waste heat back to the communities, then we're creating a cloud that is not sustainable, that is fundamentally unsustainable. And yeah, you say all these things in terms of, you know, because they are challenges for the cloud industry, but the scale, if we look at the world, all of those figures are going in the wrong direction. If you look at the circular economy, less and less of our, our kind of material usage and stuff we extract is being circled back into the economy because we're growing so fast. The demand is increasing at a pace that the desire for sustainability is not matching. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can link that to politics and culture. The fines that exist right now for security breaches are going to be a big driver of what you prioritize versus potentially the requirements of sustainability reporting or maybe in the future fines as well or at least a carbon tax for your carbon emissions you know until those things are pushing uh, what we prioritize um for now we're just in this happy mode of, of sort of grow on the cloud and all our businesses can grow and, and it's all happy and, and everything's going to be a-okay but yeah circularity and even kind of the hyperscalers and there's been lots of different attempts over the years, and, and I recognize in the UK, the UK government created something called G Cloud, which the idea was to open up markets to more SMEs, uh, and part of it was cloud computing and cloud providers. Uh, over time, that kind of did work for a while. Uh, then the hyperscalers got onto those contractual frameworks themselves, but also just our ability to use the cloud, our desire for growth, the skill sets that existed. And linking it back to education, you know, if you've got all your hyperscale cloud providers educating everyone that learns the cloud or, or learns how to code, it's going to be difficult for you as a business to make a decision to do things differently because you can't recruit people who do things differently. <laughs> the market looks like what the hyperscalers want it to look like. And, you know, I think there's there's more we could do to sort of start thinking about these things ourselves to, so we can take different actions, be more sustainable. Again, you know, the reality is we have to start caring about sustainability and the impact of the cloud more because it's the only way that's going to motivate people to be more efficient, to, to code things better, to think about serverless and, and doing things differently rather than just it's all fine because it's infinite and scalable. <laughs> yeah, and, and we can we can think about the, the, the history of technology and the ways that limits have been sometimes a source of inspiration or innovation. And I think here we're, we're reaching kind of the limits of, of what this cloud as it is currently configured, can it, how, how it can expand without um, destroying the planet. And so this crisis that we find ourselves in could be a, a, a wellspring for some kind of uh, paradigm shift. And then we can see some paradigm shifts occurring, some people who are pioneering this. I can think specifically of uh, Singapore and the Tropical data center as a experiment that is being run 
to think about the possibility of running servers at really high temps and high humidities. And is that a better solution um, for not only the tropics, which has the unique challenge of having to mitigate high temps and high humidity on the, on, uh, from their uh, data storage environments, but also that could be exported more broadly. And so these are kinds of uh, s- small steps that can be taken. And I think another is, is, is changing the ecosystem of storage altogether. Does everything need to be always at the ready, always available instantly? Can we change the way that we build in redundancy to think about other storage media? Mm-hmm. For a very long time, for, for most of the 20th century, there were other storage media that were used that are mm-hmm. way more durable than the digital storage media that we have. Our servers die after three years <laughs> on average, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, but we have things like the Kipu that the Inca built thousands of years ago that we can still read the data that, they're, <laughs> that are encoded in the fibers that are woven from llamas and other camelids, right? So the fact that our, we're, we're so futuristic, but our digital infrastructure is so feeble by comparison from the perspective of durability. Mm-hmm. is instructive right and and it, it 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 gives it makes me think that there are other clouds that are possible we'll get back to our interview soon but i really want to highlight that it's not all doom and gloom in the world so now is the part of the show where we shine a spotlight on companies charities and organizations that are contributing to making the world a better place supporting ethical businesses and charities that are doing good in the world is the easy way for all of us to also contribute when we're able to This week's organization spotlight is on the State of Open Conference. It's a conference being organized by Open UK and the CEO, Amanda Brock, who I interviewed for my podcast uh, a few episodes ago last year. And I've been working with them and the organization to bring it together. So I am the conference content director and I've been working with all of the speakers and getting all of the panels organized for the UK's Open Technology Conference. So we're focused on open source software, open hardware, and open data. We have loads of different things going on from a sub-conference for Sustain OSS and unconference. We have different tracks for content, including platform engineering, open hardware, security, government law and policy, and open data. And we also have a really cool room, which is the entrepreneurship room so there we'll have different panel speaking sessions and then you have the opportunity to sit on a table with founders of open source companies and businesses to ask them questions about the work that you do or stuff which comes up really commonly is how to monetize open source these are people who've made businesses out of working in open source it's really special the conference as well for different reasons so we have a big focus on sustainability i as i was a part of reviewing all of the cfp content i reviewed it for sustainability and for diversity and i've been liaising with all of the speakers on including the right content and where it didn't already touch on sustainability suggestions on how they could add that in so as a conference we're focused on sustainability throughout it's not just a side piece it's not just a one-off track or a small demonstration as as part of the uh, expo hall but sustainability is everything we do and that goes into different areas of the conference as well so for every delegate that does attend on the day we'll be planting a tree in the uk we will be looking at other elements of, of different type of swag to reduce materials use and waste we're looking at vegan options for a lot of the food at the conference 
And there are many other things that we're doing to really highlight sustainability. When it comes to diversity, I'm happy to also announce we have over 115 confirmed speakers that are public on the website right now and more to come. And we're looking at the figures where a lot of them are from different backgrounds, whether that's not male or not white. And we have a really great lineup, including some all uh, female or non-male panels, all track hosts being female or non-binary. And it is really trying to make a difference from that perspective as well and hopefully be as accommodating to everyone. We have loads of different amenities for guests to encourage accessibility from a creche, a doggy daycare, prayer room, code of conduct, neurodiversity spaces and room, uh, ability for you to work, lots of delegate experience focused content from, you know, when you go to traditional conferences, there's lots of focus on speaking and attending events, but we also put loads of effort into making sure that you have workspaces, there's an open source job board, there's quiet corridors and other things where you can basically interact with other people at the conference. Like we're really putting the hallway track uh, at the forefront of the conference. So we have the delegate experience areas across three floors, which includes stuff like an AI painting booth from GitHub, uh, Avanard bringing in 3D printers, uh, BBC doing a interactive audio visual experience called Seeking New Gods, a state of open photo exhibition, and ability to get headshots and photography done. There's lots of different things for you to do and come and get involved with at the conference. So I really wanted to highlight it and also say that I have tickets to give away. So for listeners of the podcast, if you are interested in attending on the 7th and 8th of February, I have um, some tickets available. So send me an email, get in touch on social media, tell me something that you're excited about the conference or even just say hello and I'll have some tickets available for the first few people that do get in touch. So make sure that you do get in touch and I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I don't know about a woven cloud, but... You are so right in, in so many different ways there because, you know, you link it back to that three-year life cycle. I think a lot of cloud providers recently upped that to four years for financial purposes, extending the life of that capital. But that doesn't always mean it is lasting that long as well because, you know, you think about SSDs, these solid-state drives, they have a capacity of how many times you can read and write to them. Once they reach the theoretical limit, there's nowhere else to rewrite that data or to reread that data and, you know, that whole thing has to be hopefully recycled, which some people do, but majoritively it's going towards waste. And yeah, that, that you know, you touched on again, just different ways of storing media. The film industry and, and sort of, you know, the media industry and marketing, I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast, that's an area where it's like this desire of politics and policy prioritized over sustainability where we say okay as part of our contractual relationship you'll keep all of this data raw footage for seven years uh, and a lot of people are defaulting to, to pretty bad storages and you know these rendering farms and, and people who generate an, um, animations for example they, they a lot of the time they host stuff themselves but yeah the, the kind of different storage mediums aren't always on the cards I, I think to be honest it is something that is possible on the cloud um, you know you can look at S3 Glacier Deep Archive uh, and it's not fully confirmed but that will be on tape storage that's why it takes so long to retrieve up to 24 hours in some cases right. uh, because they yeah. physically have to go and get a little robot or a machine <laughs> to go and grab the tapes and re read them onto something because again when it comes off Deep Archive it is duplicated onto somewhere you can access it you have to then manage that duplicate of data, which again is another, it's just the cloud is just for ease and access, everything gets duplicated, everything gets duplicated. And yeah, I just, it's a really interesting area. 
Yeah, and there and there are other emerging technologies in media, DNA, molecular data storage, ceramics, and glass that are etched with lasers and what we call five D mm -hmm. uh, resolution crystals that are supposedly have the tens of the thousands of times of storage capacity as um, the equivalent to scale of silicon or any kind of disk drives. I do worry in some ways, like, you know, we think about these technological advancements and, we, you know, we let's get into the realm of sci-fi here. You know, when we write our sci-fi, the world of Star Wars doesn't have to worry about data transfer speeds and the speed of light and, <laughs> and everything else. It all seems to just work. And, you know, we, one day maybe it'll all work for us as well. But I feel like, again, this culture of cloud, we keep trying to chase this technological advancement where it'll be like, okay, there'll be a new generation of storage or compute and the power of consumption will just drop. And, and you know, there's no point worrying about sustainability today because some sort of technology will, will solve all our problems. And actually the reality is it, it, it may not keep up, but physics is getting in the way. Like some of the chip <laughs> sizes and, and sort of how we can sort of manipulate stuff, we're getting down to electron jumping and, and other issues. Like we are th facing boundaries. And coming back to that, that argument, because I, I really just wanted to kind of jump up and, and, and say exactly what you were saying before is boundaries breeds innovation. The gaming industry is something I like to reference in this area because, you know, you've got these games that came out in the 90s, like Pokemon for the Game Boy, uh, which were just, you know, expansive worlds and, and gave so much to imagination and added so much to culture and society. But it was put on a tiny little cartridge and it was very limited in the kilobytes and they had to do crazy things to kind of use sprites on a single sheet and other different things to, to sort of reduce that storage and duplication because there was boundaries. And, you know, that, that's the sort of thinking which we need back into our technology and the way that we build things because the cloud has just pushed all of that away because they want to sell more cloud. Right now, when you deploy a cloud account uh, for majority of the cloud providers, they don't really deploy it with limits. You then have to go and choose your policies and, and decide what can and cannot be accessed by, by, by members of staff. You know, whereas in theory, it would be as easy as anything for, for a cloud provider to say, this is the most efficient cloud account. If you only use serverless, if you only store things in this way, if you have these boundaries and limits for individual users or, mm -hmm. or, or whatever else, then that's how you start sustainable and continue. But to be honest, when you've got cloud providers offering hundreds of grands of credits to, to start up so they can build fast and get their product out there, and then you know the, the, the source of income come, disappears and those credits disappear, uh, VC money is going straight into the cloud and, and everything else because they just want to sell. They don't want to encourage or push for that innovation, or to be honest, have people think about this too deeply. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think that that's uh, it's really crucial what you what you said about um, you know the political economy of of cloud as a as an industry is also really important to the story here, and also the cultural expectations about how data storage should occur and what uh, our digital ecosystem is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to work. Those things also have to change. So these techno fixes are not going to be enough. We also have to have a fundamental cultural paradigm shift as well to support them um, mm. and also to recognize that a lot of this is, is political and economic and that uh, those things are, are not natural. They can be changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it. But you you look at society, and and we can't even do this for cars, for example. Cars have only existed for eighty years, and and are not natural. And and don't just there isn't just how society has to exist to prioritize cars on streets over over pedestrians. But 
even in in the cultural aspect of fighting that argument, you have people who are wedded to this, like the sort of arguments that people come out with, with, oh, what if my nan wants to transfer a, 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 a fridge like 15 miles or whatever else? What am I going to do then? And And it's just like... It's such a difficult conversation to have, especially in a world of technology where it feeds so many of our fantasies. Like for a lot of people, technology is also an escape. The internet is is a different world where you can be yourself or you can kind of find other connections. And, and do you know what? Right. It should exist. I'm not saying let's all kind of run off and, and you know, <laughs> only write on tablets and, 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 and speak to our neighbors. But it, it's hard to get that message in of, of okay, this isn't just all good and it's not just neutral i mean that's part of the, the conversation we assume all technological growth is, is is neutral and our vision of the world in the future we look at sci-fi like the expanse is that you know it's all technology and and glass buildings and and, and techno advances that goes with good clean living and, and what our future should be and you know i feel like we should probably be thinking more about going back to the 80s or 90s rather than trying to achieve the the 2200s at this point in time <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, another another really important point that you've made is is to think thinking about science fiction as a prism or or speculative fiction as a kind of prism to 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 make sense of our place in the world, but also what the future could be and how our digital ecosystem could change. I, I do think that there is a there are growing segments of the speculative fiction space that are really actively tackling this problem and thinking about this. I can think for one of the area known as climate fiction and also the solar punk movement as two intertwined related genres of speculative fiction and art that are mm. trying to take up this call to imagine a world that is better uh, or imagine a, a, not a perfect world, not a perfect utopia, but a world that is better um, where things could be different. And so th not only are these worlds glittering because they have fancy technologies that uh, make their, their lives um, wonderful, it's, it's the social relations that undergird those technologies that are also really crucial to the worlds that they, integral to the worlds that they're creating, imagining, and building. Worlds that are more inclusive, that are more egalitarian, that are more and that have different relationship with infrastructure, because infrastructure is one of those interesting um, facets of society where it's something that's supposed to be for all. But we've seen, in depending on the history and the, the specific uh, context, infrastructure can also be very uh, much about a business, and it's privatized. And here, here, here's a perfect example, because digital infrastructure is, by many arguments, uh, both at the UN and elsewhere, it, the right to connect is, is, is increasingly framed as a universal right. Or um, the the internet is 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 um, in its early history was framed as a public commons or a digital commons, but we've seen over the course of these decades how this public commons has become privatized. This is another way to kind of think about this: is the the internet that could have been. Um, <laughs> Don't depress <laughs> me too much. I, I yeah, you, you're so right, and it, yeah. It's it's cars like let's go like just linking it back to cars because to help people understand this a bit more, you know, sure. cars and public transport and and Paris Marx is, is another podcaster and, and if people hopefully people who listen to my podcast are already aware of his which is tech won't save us, but you know you, you kind of investigate public transport and the role of money and billionaires and kind of culture in perpetuating a system that already exists and and why they want it to exist. So you know, cars brings in a lot of money. It builds cars. It sells gas. It sort of 
put infrastructure projects on the road. It, it, it's all sorts of different things that bring in money. So you look at like Elon Musk and technology and his his role in Tesla, and but also more importantly Hyperloop. This promise of kind of this you know really slick and 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 cool next generation of public transport in the form of his cars in in tiny dangerous tunnels. Whereas then you look at the cloud, and it, it's a very similar story of there are now money that wants to keep it this way and that we we don't kind of we're not able to bring it back into the commons and there's not enough politicians or, or whatever else who are actually asking these questions of what should the internet look like um i remember in the uk jeremy corbyn um talked about sort of this kind of state internet access or at least even just it was more around the ability to pay for it so it was subsidized or you know, a sort of single cost to access it because actually digital inequality is, is a massive thing because even in a country like the UK, there are still people who maybe only access the internet through school or mobile devices because one, we have to access the internet more increasingly commonly with society. So people have to rely on, on a kind of these public spaces, which there are fewer of them. Libraries are closing. But when, when schools were closing with COVID and people were sort of relying on accessing education at home, we started to realise that you know, there were more people than we realized who, who were kind of not digitally able to access those spaces because they couldn't afford it, literally, either with the computers or the internet access. And, you know, when the world has three billion people who've never used the internet, is it right that the West and our culture continues to prioritize it and think that it's 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 all right? Uh, you know, again, coming back to AI, these AI generated images and the amount of GPUs that go into this, I sometimes wonder if, if certain technologies are built to sell the cloud themselves, especially AI and Bitcoin, for example. Uh, while not a lot of Bitcoin was was on uh, the cloud, stuff like Ethereum was sixty percent hosted on the cloud. Uh, these big cloud providers had a lot of differing uh, no. Uh, for these these blockchain technologies and you know again three billion people don't access the internet at all is it right that we just play around with this shit and yeah how do we change that what and, and speculative fiction is a good way of looking at it Anne curry is, is is somebody i interviewed recently for one of my podcasts um she wrote a book series called the panopticon series and the first book is is, is called utopia five about this you know 2050 future where God is run out of a data center and the world was saved by uh, AI, like AI drones. And it's, yeah, it's a really interesting kind of allegory for a lot of the culture of the cloud and, and, and sort of what we should start thinking about with technology of the future. So, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. This has probably been one of my favorite podcasts. It's like, it's almost like... It, my journey when I started, like back in, in in April last year, has sort of got me to this point where I'm, I'm I'm kind of one more knowledgeable to have these conversations, but two meeting great guests like you, and and I'm just so glad we could have this conversation. Last two things thank before you. we <laughs> thank you as well. Last two things before we go. What's your one tip uh, for our listeners to, to sort of live, work, and code more sustainably? Hmm. So this is this is a difficult question, and I get asked this question uh, frequently. And I, I usually give a similar answer, and my primary answer is, <laughs> as an anthropologist, is pay attention to language and be skeptical about language. When, when you see the words carbon neutral, be very careful, be very skeptical. And remember, too, that the digital's ecological impact is not just about carbon. It's about other things as well. It's about water. It's about dispossession of land. It's about noise. It's about electronic waste. And it's about economic dispossession as well. 
So we can think a lot about uh, what is wrong with the cloud, uh, but we can't narrowly circumscribe it to be about carbon. Mm. Because I think the, the, the most important thing to kind of remember about the history of da the data center industry and, and the cloud is this is an industry that has regulated itself. And part of that <laughs> self-regulation is controlling the narrative around its own ecological impacts. Many of these sustainability overtures were not implemented until people like Greenpeace decided to, f to fly blimps, <laughs> shaming cloud providers for their dirtiness, quote unquote, their dirty cloud. So, so there's a whole history to that as well. So just to be, be skeptical of these marketing messages, uh, but also demand more from mm -hmm. your representatives. Individual abstinence alone is not going to stop what's happening. As much as I would would valorize it to the degree that it can be done, because it it's very difficult today with all of the the ways that our economy and daily lives are so imbricated online, it's almost it's almost impossible to escape uh, for many of us in in the global north. But I do think that that it is uh, really important to to think beyond just like individual impact and and think about regulation. How do you get more involved in in with your uh, with people who represent you uh, in a political sense, what what can you do for for policy? Also, bringing awareness and 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 thinking on a micro scale because the other thing is that the cloud is this global phenomenon, but it's also very local and mm -hmm. its impacts are very local and they're felt on a very local scale as well as global scale. Yeah, I just can't agree more with everything you're saying there. And yeah, demand more of, of your cloud providers as well. Like when you're being skeptical and when you're asking for things, you know, really dig into it and, and get people at the cloud providers caring as well. Because, you know, these things are people like the people who work in cloud companies are part of that culture and a part of the systems that demand change. Um, you know, there's going to always be a layer of, of the world that prioritizes money and growth because we have shareholders and, you know, Amazon, all the employees are shareholders of Amazon. So you can use your voice. But, you know, we have to start asking, is it right that we kind of push all of this uh, rather than really thinking differently. And, you know, a really clear example of that is sort of, you know, prioritization of moving to the cloud because it is more carbon efficient or neutral or the claims that may be, you know, certain cloud providers may say 88% carbon reduction, uh, mostly if you look at only from a lens of energy consumption and to outdated data from almost seven years ago. And I just find the fact that yeah, there's not a lot of pushback either from individuals or politicians or people who are really kind of starting to raise awareness about this. And yeah, hopefully that'll change. And and to be honest, it, I kind of find it really weird how kind of part of the, this podcast is part of it, like the connections I've been making and self-plug here, I guess, because I think I might put this podcast out very soon. I'm organizing a conference on the 7th and 8th of February in London called the State of Open Conference. It's one of the first technology conferences that is focused on open source in the sense of open hardware, open data, and open source. And I'm really proud that open hardware section is going to be focused on things like circularity of data centers and more and more conversations about sustainability. Um, the whole conference as well is also 
uh, focused on sustainability throughout all of the tracks. It's not just a side piece or a one-off. Um, we've asked all the speakers to focus on sustainability and diversity in, in bringing that into the conference. Because to be honest, I, I've said this before, Like I feel like open is probably going to be the way we save the world and, and come up with these new innovative technologies. It's, it's not going to be the next generation of hyperscale data centers that is going to change everything in, and and give us what we need to live so yeah that conference should be really good we've got over 114 confirmed speakers and yeah some some really great guests uh jimmy wales who's the co-founder of the wikipedia foundation wow. um we have representatives from the un and the white house uh talking about cybersecurity, and yeah many many Excellent. more so thank you so much for joining me today there's one final thing as well is the charity donation so as a thank you for coming on donate 500 pounds to a charity of your choice who have you chosen and why so the organization that i listed um was it, it's it's called concentrate and they are a organization based in mexico and they reach out to a lot of different communities in mexico that are rural communities and what they do is they work with very local people I actually had the privilege of going to one of these communities. It's a place called Miguel Hidalgo in the state of Chiapas. And I was very much inspired by the work of a, a group of women who worked with Concentrarte and other organizations to create sustainable farming plots. And so these, these women are now growing food in their own community to sell, but also to feed their community. And this is really important because these are these are kinds of communities where a lot of the men who are part of the household are not in the household very often because they leave to go work. work. So this yeah. is might be going really to a data center. For, yeah. <laughs> so this is really a really wonderful organization, and they do a lot of education, outreach, um, and art uh, projects of, of various kinds as well. And they're they're based in Mexico. They're um, they're a wonderful wonderful organization, and I I'm I'm really grateful for your support. Just such a, an amazing choice. You know, it's something that we don't really realize actually is the climate impact will impact women more strongly uh, in, in certain ways, and especially in rural communities, like you said, where the kind of focus on farming and, and sort of our ability to farm food is going to change and sort of the impact of, of, of raising families in, in these future environments. So kind of having more locally and more sustainable and, and kind of different ways of looking at farming is a key part of, of our future as well. And yeah, what an amazing organization. Thank you so much for today. And I can't wait to speak again soon. Thank you so much, Aaron. Great pleasure talking to you and, and all of your listeners. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Imbue, a cloud sustainability consultancy. There's one final thing from me. I would love it if you could do one thing this week to make the world a brighter place. And if you do want to share it with us, then please get in touch with us on social media or leave it alongside your review as a comment. 